For the week of February 8th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we will break down some of the news in and about our state. We will talk with Indivisible North Seattle founder Jonathan Tong, and then we will have our weekly call to action. So, Some of you may have noticed that our state has been in the national news quite a bit, and for good reasons. Uh, You, of course, know all about Trump's executive order, which, let's go ahead and use the words that Rudy Giuliani used when he described it on Fox News, a Muslim ban was ordered. That was on the 27th. This led to nationwide protests at airports across the country, including a massive one here at SeaTac. Our governor, Jay Inslee, held an emergency press conference in which he compared the ban to the U.S. internment of Japanese citizens during World War II. And then he hilariously went on to add about the White House that, quote, these people couldn't run a two-car funeral. He's a funny guy, our governor. Then our attorney general, Bob Ferguson, made news by becoming the first to file a motion against the ban on January 30th to issue a temporary restraining order asserting that portions of the ban are unconstitutional. Because, hey, as it turns out, they are. So said Seattle Judge James Robart, who I think it's important to point out here for context, was appointed by that known liberal George W. Bush, so-called judge indeed. But it gets better. A number of Washington corporations joined a lawsuit with a friend of the court brief, including Amazon, Expedia, and Microsoft. And this prompted a number of other tech companies to sign on, including Airbnb, eBay, Netflix, Twitter, and kind of pathetically, Uber. Maybe too little too late there, Uber. Uh, Anyway, now there are six Washington-based biotech firms that have joined the amicus brief, bringing the grand total of corporations to 160. So way to lead the charge there, Washington. Also, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz said that the company intends to hire 10,000 refugees across 75 countries, and they have set up free legal advice for any of their employees currently affected by the ban. Add to all that the fact that the city of Seattle has defiantly reasserted its status as a sanctuary city, which means technically that the city refuses to prosecute undocumented immigrants for violating federal immigration laws. And King County, which is Seattle's county and also my home county, is currently moving to be the first in the state to become a sanctuary county. Now, at the time of this recording, a Ninth Circuit judge is hearing an appeal by the White House on the travel ban, asserting that the Seattle judge exceeded his authority by putting a nationwide halt to the executive order. And we will, of course, discuss that next week. But for now, that is a quick look at Washington State in the news. If you have thoughts, comments, anything at all that you would like to convey or have covered here, shoot me an email at WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Our guest this week is Jonathan Tong. He is the founder of the Indivisible North Seattle Group, a group that is growing very rapidly in numbers. Jonathan is a school teacher by trade, but he says his activist roots go back to the Occupy Wall Street movement. I see Indivisible as pretty much picking up where Occupy Wall Street left off, but learning from a few critical mistakes that they've made. So talk about some of those mistakes. What are what are some of the mistakes that you see as, as the ones that you would like to rectify? 
I think one of the main mistakes with Occupy Wall Street was they, they just never had a real clear mission, never a real clear strategy for what they were going to do. Uh, and they never had uh, a strategy that really it was accessible for everyone. They pretty much branded themselves on a tactic of occupying public places. And there's just not really that much, <laughs> not more than like 1% of the population that's able to actually do that. So they really limited the amount of participation they could get, even though they still got a huge effect just from the people who did. And the other thing was they, they steadfastly committed to being non-political uh, at all. They, they were very committed to not engage in the political process, and that's definitely not what we're doing. Yeah, this is a, a very different type of movement, both in feel and in execution. Um, your Facebook group, and I want to quote from the mission statement because I think it's interesting. Uh, it says, quote, this group is for uh, people who want to form the liberal equivalent of the Tea Party, who want to take a few pages from the Tea Party playbook, focusing on its strategic choices and tactics without the nuttiness and hatefulness. I like that part, by the way. Uh, we are the Tea Party inverted, locally driven advocacy built on inclusion, fairness and respect. So that's a great mission statement, one that seems to be kind of when the Indivisible Guide came out, what a lot of people were sort of gleaning from that, which was, hey, the Tea Party actually was really effective in staging a, a takeover of uh, American legislative uh, government. So that's kind of your jumping off point then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I wish I could claim credit for the wording on there. But no, I, I pretty much copied and pasted straight from Indivisible. <laughs> Okay. That's almost all of their wording there. I think the nuttiness part was my wording. Excellent. A good addition. All right. So in your district, and you are part of where you live anyway, is in Washington's first congressional district. What are your areas specifically of focus in terms of action for your group in your area? We've only met twice now i mean i launched this group i believe on january 10th so that's almost a month ago so it took a couple weeks to build up enough membership that i felt like we were ready to have a face-to-face -face meeting so our first meeting was two weeks ago uh we had man i uh, we had almost 200 people show up for it oh that's great which is really amazing because on the events page i think we had maybe 130 140 people say they were going to go and from my experience the general rule of thumb is you get about half the number of people who show up who actually said they were yeah i was gonna say you usually invert that but you got more yeah, yeah and then we had our second meeting just this past sunday today's tuesday so it was like three days ago uh, and that was on Super Bowl Sunday, and we still had 100 people that were fired up uh, and, and there at that meeting. Well, yeah, it's because the Seahawks weren't playing, right? So <laughs> people, people had <laughs> yeah. free time. Yeah. So if the Seahawks were playing, I would have been home watching the game. Yeah, yeah just like everybody else. Uh, so you have made a point of on a couple of posts on the Facebook group talking about targeting Trump's conflicts of interest. Um, yep. As well as Steve Bannon being an area of focus, particularly his appointment, what is coming to light now is possibly a self-appointment uh, to a seat on the National Security Council. What is your group's strategy in addressing that with our members of Congress? 
Our main strategy is to focus on those two issues for now in the Senate, because that's where all of the action seems to be happening right now. And out of all the different things that we could be focusing on, those are the two that seem to be the most important, most pressing, most imminent and and urgent. As you can see that, you know, our group has discussed this quite a bit uh, in person and online, and we all seem to be agreeing that no legitimate president would do what Trump is doing. I mean, he might have been legally elected, but that doesn't make him a legitimate president. Every other president we've had with any kind of conflicts of interest has released their tax returns and they put their holdings into a blind trust so that we know that when they're making foreign and domestic policy decisions, they're doing what's best for the American people, not for their own personal business investments. Trump knows that he's got those conflicts of interest and he just basically refuses to do anything about it. He refuses to release his tax returns. He refuses to put his holdings into a blind trust. He refuses to do to anything to reassure us that when he's making those decisions that he's not doing it just to, to, to make him and his family richer. So from that point of view, we've kind of determined that that's pretty much justification to block anything that he does. He he is not and he should not be treated as a legitimate president until he releases those tax returns, until he gets rid of those conflicts of interest. Otherwise, I mean, every day for the foreseeable future, as long as he's in office, we're always going to have to be asking those questions about anything that he does, whether he's doing it for the people, whether he's doing it for himself. And he's already, I mean, we knew already on day one that he was violating the emoluments clause of That's the right. Constitution. Yeah, yeah so, and in fact, it's looking like he's probably going to uh, or at least his administration's representatives are going to be spending a record amount of time in court over yeah. a lot of those conflicts of interest. So then your tactic or strategy would be to uh, put pressure on our two senators, uh, Maria Cantwell and Patty Murray, to and you're saying to push them to oppose pretty much everything that he does. Yeah. Rather than try to argue the merits for any given cabinet nominee, I think they should just come out and say, hey, we're going to block every single thing you do, including cabinet nominees, until you release your tax returns and get rid of conflicts of interest. I would think that's something that pretty much most any reasonable American citizen would agree on. I mean, only the most rabid Trump supporters would agree that a president of the United States should not be using his position of power to enrich himself personally. Oh, come on, Jonathan. Are you saying Trump supporters are not reasonable people? Come on. Exactly. And we're not going to waste our time trying to win those people over. But the other 60, 70 percent of the population, they just need to be educated about it. And that's kind of what we're doing. We need to make sure they're clear on it and that they don't get distracted by the shock and awe warfare tactics that this administration is doing otherwise by barraging us every day with one atrocity after another to distract us away from the conflicts of interest and away from what Bannon is doing. I mean, that's the other talk about Steve Bannon, because that's another area of focus for your site and your group. Yeah. Well, so we've got a president whose chief advisor is a self-avowed propagandist for neo-Nazis, and he's managed to manipulate Trump, his puppet, into getting him a permanent seat on the National Security Council at the same time that he demoted two senior members of the council. That looks a lot like a coup d'etat to me. That really looks like a hostile takeover of our government and our democratic system by neo-Nazis. And I really can't think of anything that's more urgent or more pressing than that. Yeah. Uh, Well, no argument for me there. Um, I want to mention your district's representative, Susan Del Bene, 
her voting record suggests that she is extremely sympathetic to opposing Trump's agenda. And I'm wondering, uh, given the fact that you have somebody like that representing your district, do you have any plans to engage with her at all? I have not really given her a whole lot of thought at this point so far because there's been so much focus on the Senate and their role in confirming cabinet nominees. So we definitely will. I would just say she's been kind of more on a back burner so far. Now, you are a school teacher, uh, and uh, your group actually has over 700 people, I think, uh, was the number that I, I saw there. Almost 800. Almost 800. So you're edging up on 800. Uh, there are a lot of opinions about what the group should do and, you know, tactics and, and all of those sorts of things that happen when you get that many uh people together, particularly people who are interested in, you know, political activism. Uh, I figure that being a teacher has informed the way that you run your group and possibly even approach activism. Uh, what, are, what are some of those ways that there's been uh, crossover? I assume it's been helpful. Oh, yeah. I, it's more than crossover. I think they're pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> they're almost identical, really, in terms of my skill set and, and, and my job, because I mean, what I do as a teacher is, I mean, I, I earn my living taking very complex issues and trying to explain them to people with 30-second attention spans mm-hmm. and people who aren't necessarily all that interested in the subject to begin with. Oh, it's that's just like social media. Back. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah, it is. That's basically the same thing that, that an activist does. So, Well, so I've noticed that one of the methods that you use uh, in setting the agenda is to basically kind of put it up as, as a vote. You basically post a concern and ask people what the action should be in response. Has that been pretty effective for you? Yeah, that's something that I've learned as an organizer. I, I never have been big on authoritarian structures, never big on hierarchical top-down organizations. I've always believed in group mind and group thinking and empowering people to take ownership of any kind of group project. That's how I run my classroom, and that's how I like to, to, to do these groups, too. So I'm always encouraging people to stake up, step up, take leadership roles, stretch themselves, try to do something that they're not necessarily that comfortable with, but they know is, is a good thing for them and good for the country. And I think people have responded well to that. I'm really, really uh, thrilled with that. Well, that's interesting because that is one of the ways in which the Occupy movement, many would look back at that and say that that's probably where they stumbled was that they maybe erred a little bit too far on the side of, you know, inclusion and making sure that everybody's viewpoints are heard and then not having anybody who was, I guess, at the top making any sorts of decisions. And while you don't necessarily consider yourself to be at the top of the group, you kind of are the de facto leader. And so do you kind of do things by consensus then when when you get a a quorum of people who say, we think we should go in this direction? Is it is it kind of raw democracy playing out there with your group? Yeah, I think my role right now is lead organizer. And that part of that means discussion facilitator. When we do get our group of 100 or 200 people together, then, yeah, I'm the one who's kind of facilitating the discussion, helping us keep on track so that we can get everything on our agenda done 
in the timeline that we said and get people out of there when we said we would. But part of my job is also looking out for other people. So I'm trying to cultivate that talent in other people also so that the group doesn't just depend on me and that we got a number of people who could step up to do that role. And we've already got a couple of people who could easily do it. I mean, you are a teacher. You're just like, you're, you're a nurturing guy. I, I like that. What, what subject do you teach? I teach uh, high school biology. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, uh, I probably should have paid a little bit more attention uh, to, uh, to you when I was in high school. Well, this is what I can say with a fair bit of authority that I know corporations are not people. Right. Oh, the, well, there you go. Yeah, they're not even carbon-based life forms. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Um, so You've done uh, your homework, my friend. Well, that, at least that part I, I knew. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, biology was not. But ma- science and mathematics, uh, unfortunately, led me to a career in the arts. But that's a subject for a different show. Um, okay. I'm curious, though, to get your take uh, as a school teacher on Betsy DeVos, who was uh, just confirmed today. You teach in a public school, so that means that... DeVos being the Secretary of Education may have a direct impact on you in some way. What What are your thoughts? Uh, I'm disappointed. I mean, it should go without saying that a billionaire Amway heiress who never went to public schools, never sent her kids to public schools, spent her entire adult life attacking public schools, probably shouldn't be in charge of the nation's public schools. But that's kind of where we are at these days. So, yeah. Yeah, I was disappointed on it, and yes, absolutely, it's going to impact me directly. Um, but like anything else, I consider it a good learning experience, and I think we learned some good things from this. Among other things, I mean, we learned this was the first time in Senate history that they actually had to summon the vice president down to break a tie on a cabinet confirmation. So that means that it was a lot harder for our opponents to win than they were expecting to. We should also mention, since a lot of your focus is on our senators, that our own Patty Murray uh, was not only one of the people who really grilled DeVos during the Senate hearing process, but she was actually one of the senators who last night participated in the filibuster. So kudos to her for that. Yeah, and we want to make a point of thanking our senators when they do good things, too, not just criticizing when they do bad things. I think that's really important. Yeah, and I've, I've kind of added that to my uh, daily, what has now become a daily routine of telling my representatives. And I, I, you know, when they do things that we like, I think it's very important to provide positive feedback as well. So there you go. Uh, Jonathan Tong, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Thank you, Stefan. Appreciate what you're doing. Keep up the great work. Time now for this week's Call to Action. I would actually like to start this segment out on a positive note by observing that what we are doing in the Indivisible movement appears to be working. All across the country and here in Washington, senators and representatives are saying they are receiving an unprecedented number of calls. Um, I'd also kind of like to point out something that might seem a little trivial, but in the big picture, I think it's just the opposite. Do you guys happen to notice just how decidedly multicultural a lot of the ads were for this Super Bowl? That's not an accident. Corporations are hearing from this movement and they are seeing the protests and they know that there are more of us and that the future of this country will be, no matter what happens over the next four or, God forbid, eight years, it's going to be multicultural. So, good news there. Now, before we get to our call to action, I would like to just call out some victories which are due to the work that you did. 
First one, uh, and this one happened right at the beginning of the new Congress, House Republicans reversed their plan to gut the Congressional Ethics Office. That was their very, very first move, um, which I think transmitted a lot to us. Anyway, they reversed it, and many of them cited uh, an enormous amount of calls that they received as the reason for doing so. Number two, the Trump administration... Still having trouble with those words. Abandoned a plan to cancel ACA enrollment advertising. And also, uh, due to pressure, people who were on the plan get to remain on the plan for the rest of the year. Number three, the VA was granted an exemption from the hiring freeze that affected many other government agencies. Number four, the Department of Defense has secured permission to grant exemptions to the immigration ban for Iraqis who work for the U.S. military, many as translators. Number five, a House Republican plan for a massive sell-off of public lands has been canceled. Number six, a Washington Post poll released Wednesday morning says that 25% of Americans say that they plan on being more politically active this year. And that includes 35% of self-identified Democrats, 40% of Democratic women, and 43% of Democrats under the age of 50. Yay, Gen X and millennials. Uh, I will add that the number of Republicans is far lower at 21%. So anyway, some good news here. Keep it up. Now, this week's call to action. This one involves Steve Bannon. (laughs) I feel like I should play Darth Vader music whenever I talk about him. Anyway, you have likely heard about his appointment to a seat on the National Security Council, an action which Trump may or may not have understood he was undertaking. (laughs) Isn't this fun? Anyway, a freshman congressman from Florida, Stephanie Murphy, has introduced House Resolution 804, which seeks to keep the NSC free from political influence and would thereby force Bannon off the council. Remember when I said it'd be a good idea to program in the number of your representative? Well, here's where that pays off. And again, I know most of you have already done that. But use that preset to call your representative and to tell him or her to please support and vote for HR 804. And that is this week's call to action. And that is also it for this week's Washington State Indivisible podcast. I thank you guys for listening. I will say this often. I very much want to hear from you with your feedback, your thoughts, your suggestions. If you would like to be on the show as a guest to talk about your group or your home district, etc. The email address, as always, is WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to Jonathan Tong, and thank you again for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.